0: Hey, Rarecast listeners, the rare disease community is full of people who inspire us through innovation, compassion, and a relentless spirit to affect positive change. Global Genes is now accepting nominations for the 2019 Rare Champion of Hope Awards. Help us identify individuals, Organizations and collaborations in your community that have made an impact in advocacy, treatment, or technology. Please help us identify people who deserve recognition for the exceptional work they do. To learn more or submit a nomination, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare hyphen champion hyphen of hyphen hope hyphen awards. That's globalgene.org forward slash rare champion of hope awards with a hyphen between each of those words after the slash thanks i'm daniel levine and this is rarecast The Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics Australia says it has created a global Angelman Syndrome Registry that gives parents and caregivers the power to drive the collection of data. Its goal is to make the registry the largest collection of information about the neurological disorder to date and use it to inform the research for new therapies by providing insight into the developmental progress, medication, and seizure management related to the condition. One unique aspect of the registry is that it uses an open-source framework developed by the Center for Comparative Genomics at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. We spoke to Megan Cross, chairperson of the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics Australia, about Angelman Syndrome the efforts to build the registry, and why the use of an open-source platform can help address barriers rare disease organizations face in creating registries. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the Global Angelman Syndrome Registry, the Rare Disease Registry Framework, and the benefits of an open-source approach to registries. Let's start with Angelman syndrome, though. For people not familiar with the condition, what is it, how does it manifest itself, and how does it progress?
1: Well, the reality, I think, is that most people would be unfamiliar with it because it's a rare disease. It affects around 1 in 15,000, so even though it's rare, it's about half a million around the world. One of the most profound features, I think, is the lack of functional speech. So, those affected might be able to say a few independent words, but they have trouble communicating with speech. They also have issues with balance and coordination, so gross motor and fine motor are delayed and impacted, seizures, issues with feeding and sleep. And I think I I need to point out a silver lining, however, that our children are quite bubbly and excitable and they give really great hugs and they're generally quite social.
0: And How is the condition treated today? At the moment,
1: treatments are limited to largely therapies such as speech therapy. I know that sounds a little bit ironic since I've said that individuals don't speak. They have a real focus on alternative communication methods like iPads and symbols, uh, physical and occupational therapies, and of course those who have seizures have anti-epileptic medications and sometimes there's medications for behavior and sleep as well. We've got some really exciting therapies in development at the moment and they're headed towards clinical trials that aim at either treating the symptoms or correcting the genetic error. So that's pretty exciting for families right now.
0: You're the chairperson of the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics Australia. How did the organization come about and what does it do? Sure. Um,
1: At the time... Of our youngest daughter, Molly's diagnosis with Angelman syndrome, there was a new and exciting foundation launching in the United States. We didn't have an association in Australia that focused on research and fundraising for research. We had an association that provided family support, so we decided to sort of jump in and and fill that gap. Our main focus is research, so We're not just focused on Australia, but collaboratively around the world. We look at unmet needs in research or research that complements what's already being done rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. We educate families and professionals about the research. We're building networks to run clinical trials for that work I spoke about earlier. And our main project is the Global Angelman Syndrome Registry.
0: Well, let's talk about the registry What's the intent of the registry and who will use it? How's it going to be used? Good question. It was built to
1: collect and distribute information on Angelman syndrome. And it's really just as simple as that. But what we do is we collect natural history on the syndrome and progression of it in a series of online modules. And they cover all the different symptoms and facets of the syndrome. Traditionally... I think research was conducted in institutes and hospitals which isn't only costly but it really limits who can participate. I live in a, a regional area and I wouldn't have the ability to participate in research if something like this wasn't available. This It brings it to the, to everyone's individual house I suppose so that everyone affected has the ability to participate in the research and in the comfort of their own home without sort of dragging their special needs child to an institution for a few hours of interviews and and examinations. And the goal of that would be to make that information available to anyone who wants to progress the understanding of Angelman or research into it.
0: Are there other Angelman syndrome registries today? No, there's not. This
1: this was the first of its type, and certainly the first that was... um, in registries in general, usually they're driven by clinicians. So this was a very unique starting point to have caregiver-initiated caregiver research.
0: And, and how well understood is the natural history of Angelman's today?
1: I think there was a natural history study done in the United States for quite some time. And that was, I think there were about 300 participants done over a period of 10 years. So, there is an understanding of the natural history study, the natural history in Angelman, but being able to access that data is the big thing. You've got to be able to look at it, analyze it, pull it apart. And 300 isn't a huge number when you've got a syndrome that varies a lot as well. I think you really need to understand it on a global scale and in big numbers.
0: And by taking this collection of data out of the hands of the clinicians is. Is there a hope that there would be a broader picture of the heterogeneity of the condition?
1: Yeah, that would would absolutely be the hope of it. You can get, Angelman syndrome is caused by a number of different factors. Although it's a single gene, there's different mechanisms which can cause Angelman syndrome. And the individuals can present quite differently. So being able to cross the board with good numbers of different genotypes should be able to provide that information
0: for us. In terms of the types of information that would be included, uh, being patient-driven, do you you think there's a potential here that this will give more of a a patient-centric view of the condition than you might otherwise have?
1: I think so, but I think that's important and perhaps something that hadn't been looked at before. And I know that... It's certainly becoming much more of a focus in the rare disease space and from regulatory authorities like the FDA where they want to hear what the patient has to say, what's their experience, what's the burden of the condition, what does, it, what does a therapeutic option look like to them. So I think having that perspective combined with one from clinicians is really
0: important. And who's the registry open to? Who can participate in it?
1: Anyone can participate in the registry with a diagnosis of Angelman. So at the moment, it's in English online, but it's also been translated into Mandarin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese and French. So once we roll those translations out, it will expand our reach to other countries around the world, which is really important because like I mentioned to you before, the bulk of that research had been done in the United States before. And the reality is that Most people affected by the syndrome are in regions like Asia, who haven't been perhaps able to participate before.
0: Well, the registry is making use of the Rare Disease Registry framework. Can you explain what that framework is?
1: Absolutely. The platform was developed by the Center for Comparative Genomics at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. It's an open-source platform, which basically means all the code behind the framework is visible and freely available to anyone. And it's designed so that anyone who wants to set up a patient registry can do so without needing to be a programmer or understand coding.
0: Well, how did the decision to create the registry come about, and how did you become involved with the use of the framework?
1: Before... Angelman entered my life. Um, I was in information science. Granted, it was geography, not medical information. But I suppose I had an understanding of what collection of data looked like and how powerful it could be. When Molly was diagnosed, after that initial sense of grief, I looked at the syndrome analytically and I wanted to know where the information was. And I was actually quite surprised that I wasn't able to get hold of a bulk of information to answer questions for me. Uh, We looked at a number of off-the-shelf solutions, listened to experiences of other people who'd attempted to form patient registries, different disease organisations. And around the same time, I crossed paths with Professor Matt Belgard, who at the time was leading the team in Perth, and he introduced us to the system, and it seemed like a no-brainer.
0: What's the benefit of using an an open source platform? That's an easy one. It's cost.
1: Cost any day of the week. That would be the first one. But it it is a bit further than that. I love the transparency of everything being freely available and open for everyone to see. There's a real advantage of going with something like um, a fluid platform like this that's always evolving and changing with the needs of the users. If we went with one of those off-the-shelf systems like I was talking about earlier, I think you run the real risk of your data being stored in a legacy system or something that becomes quickly outdated. The rare disease registry framework is not for profit. It's not proprietary. So it's not a big company making money off understanding more about the disease. And what I love probably the most is when someone else invests in functionality then it's available to everyone else. So if we decide that we want our patient registry to do something and we engage the developers to to do that, then everyone else using the platform has those features available. Of course, that means then we can share development and we can um, team up to get things in a more cost-effective manner.
0: You you mentioned the economics. How big a barrier is the economics to building, launching, and, and maintaining a registry? And to what extent does using an open source platform address that?
1: Uh, look, there is a lot to consider. It's not like it, I made it sound very easy that you can jump in and create one, and certainly you can jump in and create one with no need to hire someone to do it for you. But you need to consider ethics or, or what you call in the United States IRB. Uh, security, the the landscape's continually changing with different privacy laws across different countries. If you're going to be global, you need to address that, so you need to invest some money in that. And we have a data curator, and obviously it needs to be hosted. But I think the need comes first, so you recognise the need that you need that information, and then those barriers are much easier to jump, especially with an open-source system like this. The fact that there are multiple groups using the platform means that you really don't have to walk that path alone. You can join with other groups or connect with them to share experiences, and it makes it a lot easier to progress forward rather than starting on your own.
0: And who controls the data? At the moment, the
1: the foundation owns the data, but we have no access to it, if that makes sense. So we can't actually... See anyone's identifying information, we need to engage someone as we have as a data curator and they control it under a strict ethics approval to who has access and how that information is distributed.
0: So what does what a researcher or company need to do to get access to the data?
1: Yeah, so they would contact the data curator or they can con- we can contact them. If they contact us, we forward that request on anyone can really access it but no data that can be ident- that can identify anyone would be released without their consent so if you wanted to know um, how many people have a certain type of seizure type and what age group they are that's freely available to anyone but when you wanted to know what their names are or where they lived that's something that you would need an IRB approval for and then we can sort out access to the data from there
0: And when did you launch the registry and how successful have you been at attracting participants?
1: Um, I think it was about two years ago. It feels like it was a lot longer than that. Actually investigating how we were going to do it and getting over some of those initial hurdles took quite a while because, like I mentioned, it was a different way of approaching it, being caregiver-initiated. So we were treading a new path. It took a little while to convince people about the project. We really needed to educate them what it was about and why it was different. I think special needs parents get really fatigued from constantly being asked the same questions, so we needed to ensure that that information could then be provided to other people and we communicated that to them. The best way for us to do it is do it once and make that data accessible to other people that need to use it. We... Once we started getting that that ball rolling and people participating, it grew from there. So we've got about 1,000 individuals now around the world, and and that will grow when we roll out those translations. But I think, as well, once people start using the information within the system to inform their research, to recruit for trials, and publish from it, that's when we'll really start to get more traction.
0: And having uh, an open source registry available how do you think this helps groups like yours in other disease areas make possible the initiation of a, a registry and, and advance research in their disease of concern?
1: Sorry, can you can I grab that one again?
0: Sure. Uh, having having the availability of an open source registry, how do you think that might accelerate the understanding of other rare diseases and the ability of groups like yours to initiate the creation of a a registry that they might not otherwise be able to do.
1: Well, I hope they can. I hope they can listen to to podcasts like this and understand how easy it is and how there is the support of other people that have gone through this process already. I think the benefit of using similar systems is that we can connect rare diseases as well. You know, it's not... Nothing is really standalone if you build them with the same data elements and the same structure in mind. So we can look at creating a big network of rare diseases, and that's certainly part of the vision of the people that set up the
0: framework. What role do you think this will play in advancing the Angelman syndrome community towards new therapeutic approaches?
1: I think it it can have a huge role, and that's part of convincing people that it's there to be used. The data we have right now can be really useful in answering questions like how many individuals take a certain type of medication, how many have a certain symptom, when did it all happen, how long did it happen for, and I think all those types of things can help inform development of research prior to starting trials or prior to starting the research. So instead of going into a project with a question, you can... Be a little bit informed about the type of question you're asking. You've already got pre-populated information. If you're going into, say, a clinical trial, you can use the natural history and demographics to help decide where to run that trial and save money and time on really having that information ready for you. We're in a partnership right now with the Queensland University of Technology, the Australian government and another couple of patient registries. We're working on making the registry clinical trial ready. So that means we can, when this is ready, we can recruit, run, and evaluate four trials within the platform. So really cool things like patient-reported outcomes from your cell phone, giving real-time input onto the things that people are experiencing in, in different trials with different treatments.
0: Megan Cross, Chairperson of the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics Australia. Megan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at Group.com.